You have a little cinemascus, didn't you? No twink He's bonds. A lot of sucking. It is a hoot and a half. It is so weird, and I don't know what its point is, but I love it. If you kill a child, I'm on board with your movie. <laughs> Diamond Dallas Page, self high five, is the real people's champion. Can I be your bratwurst? Please. Do you have a crush on him? That does not narrow it down. The answer is probably yes. I am obsessed with Schrader. I want that man to marry me. Show me that pale brown eye. (laughs) Bring me to your crypt, baby. Is nice, nice derriere. He has a very sweet ass. Very cute butt. Does. I want to see some dong. Not entirely successful. This is an excruciating experience. I understand that you are the Hoover. It's like a Tasmanian <laughs> devil. We hope that this is never a floppy list. That we get you hard. Hard watch. Soft skip. Watch. Skip. Plus. Welcome one and all to another edition of Watch Skip Plus, a movie review podcast with a lifestyle twist. Each week, my lovely co-host and I will review a brand new film, whether that be in the theaters, streaming digitally, sometimes simultaneously, and we will let you know you, we think you should watch or skip it. And the plus is our lifestyle twist, and that can be anything from the week that we want to talk about, another movie, television show, uh, maybe a new car we purchase, maybe new cat food we purchase, not for our cat, for ourselves, you know. Because sometimes you just like the taste. I am the Cinemascist, Justin the Red, joined as always by Cupcake, a.k.a. Machine Gun Jelly. Jose, how are you doing? I'm doing good. And just so you know, I have actually tried cat food before. (laughs) On purpose? On purpose. um, Not even as a dare, really. I just kind of was (laughs) like, what is my cat eating? Uh, And... Uh, so it was, <laughs> it was basically like the, dr- the dry food stuff or whatever. So I did not try from the can, um, because after I ate the dry food stuff, I was like, okay, the pets can have it. It's awful. <laughs> yeah, It's not made for humans. <laughs> have you ever had the, uh, the frozen dog food treats? Because we've, we've had people when I worked in the frozen food department that bought that, not knowing it was for dogs, even though it said on the front, this is for dogs. They just thought it was a joke and it was the mascot. So so I, I have not, I have not, um, but I will tell you to describe the taste at first when you bite into it. And I think this was uh, me. I want to say it's meow mix, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you first bite, bite into it, it, it almost has like a cereal like quality to it. It actually tastes a little sweet, but then immediately it's real taste kicks in <laughs> and it's awful. So it really is awful. What you're saying is try it with milk and maybe it'll go down smoother. Uh, no, do not try it with milk. And I see why my cat did not like the hard food. Ah, uh, see, Shadow loves it. That's his That's his cuisine. All right. Well, that is not either of our pluses, unless maybe it was. Did I Did I catch your plus off guard there? No, right, not, well, my, not my plus. <laughs> then, Jose, why don't you enlighten me and the listeners? What is your plus for this week, your actual plus? Okay, so my my plus for this week, I actually am going to save what I intended for next week because I Scooter and I actually we have the Regal Pass, so we did the we did a double feature. And one of the great things about the the Regal Pass is that as long as the films do not overlap, you can see two films in one day, three films in one day if you felt like. And so I we saw the film that we are reviewing, which we'll get to later, but I also checked out No Hard Feelings. Uh, this is a film directed by Gene Stubnitsky. He is the same man who has uh, given us Bad Teacher. Uh, well, actually, he was a producer on Bad Teacher. 
Uh, he has directed uh, episodes of The Office and then a film called Good Boys from 2019. This is the one that featured the under 11-year-old kids who were cursing and, and talking about porn and stuff like that. It was a very divisive sort of trailer and movie. Uh, I actually thought it was very funny. I did Scooter too. did not. Scooter did not like kids cursing quite like that. Um, Stupnitsky is also Ukrainian, and so bingo, he's gorgeous. <laughs> um, but this film, No Hard Feelings, uh, it stars Jennifer Lawrence and then a gentleman uh, who's new to me, but apparently not new to the world, uh, Andrew Barth Feldman. He, I believe, has been on Broadway, the Dear Evan Hansen musical. There is a television series called Foul Play, which he's currently in. He was in High School, the musical, the musical, the series. I really hate that title. <laughs> Almost so. It reminds me of when you talked about the first Purge, mm -hmm. which was not the first Purge. It actually was the prequel and the fourth yeah. film. So you hate that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but... Uh, so the it's weird. The trailers market this almost as some sort of raunchy sex comedy. And I want to let you know, obviously, there is thematic material about sex. Uh, anybody who doesn't know, Jennifer Lawrence is hired by the parents of this shut-in, sort of like 19-year-old who's ready to go to Princeton. This takes place in Montauk, uh, New York. And they hire her to sort of, uh, quote-unquote, date him or have him lose his virginity so that he is at least out of his social shell when he reaches Princeton. Um, and the trailers, again, feature some some raunchy things. But what's what I found interesting about this film, and it is a definite watch, and I hope that, that people are going to actually go out and see this, but what I found interesting about this, quote-unquote, sex comedy was it's not really like... Porky's or Spring Break. Uh, these are films that I grew up on. Hot Dog the Movie. Things that like we would just live to see late night on HBO when our parents were asleep and there was all the nudity and stuff. Um, this one is almost like a updated, more sensitive take on those 80s sex comedies. And it is surprisingly poignant, surprisingly emotional. Jennifer Lawrence knocks it out of the park as if she wasn't already one of my favorite actresses. She is incredible in this movie. She has some amazing comedic timing. And even though her character is actually kind of despicable, um, you really do feel for her. And this this kid, Andrew, he's not a kid, he's a man. Andrew Barth Feldman, he's sort of looks like Tom Holland's nerdier Jewish younger brother. Um, but he is absolutely adorable and sweet. He sings in the film. I won't give it away. Um, and I won't give away the sort of uh, 80s soundtrack that sort of uh, populates the film. But it really, really is a sweet movie. Not what the trailers have portrayed. And if if we're talking about films for a sensitive culture now that that maybe don't want to see things that are too sexy or raunchy or offensive I, this is a new breed of comedy and i think they handled it extremely well even if the concept of it is distasteful um i will say this also shout out to heidi moneymaker who is a stunt woman that i um absolutely adore she came up through 8711 she's she doubled uh, Scarlett Johansson in the Black Widow movies and the Avengers movies. She's a great stunt woman. Um, there, there is a fight in this film 
that I don't want to spoil, but it's very, very surprising. And I cannot tell if Jennifer Lawrence did some of this or if it was all Renee or I'm sorry, all Honey Heidi Moneymaker, but they really put it out there. It's also a great comedic fight scene. It's amazing. So no hard feelings. Run out and see it. I know there's a lot of competition and actually I believe Spider-Man might come out on top this weekend as well as Elemental and The Flash is bombing. I think this film might end up somewhere third place potentially. So, um, so it's looking yeah. for a good opening around high teens, low 20s, and it could have good legs. So, Yeah. And interestingly enough, the film was shot by Eagle Brilled, and we talked about him on The Machine as he was the cinematographer for that film as well. He uh, knows his business, and even comedies need good cinematography. Mm-hmm. Maybe, is he the cinematographer for Strays as well, the, uh, the raunchy dog-voiced comedy? <laughs> So it's it's interesting, um, uh, you know, these films seem sort of similar in their sort of raunchy humor, uh, but obviously this the point of difference here is, again, coming of age, and it, it really, really is heartfelt. I almost teared up, right? I almost cried at the end of, I cried at the end of The Flash, I almost teared up in this film, and I dare say I would actually see it again. Like, it was that funny. I had, I had a blast with it, but... I'm not sure who shot Strays. <laughs> we may we'll, we may find out the closer it gets to that. So possibly, possibly we'll see. Justin, what about you? What's All what's your right. plus? Well, my plus is the end of a television show. So what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to talk about the show as a whole, uh, just briefly, and that is HBO Succession, which I would say I think it was ah. Memorial Day weekend was when that came to a close. I didn't intend to just binge the fourth season like I binged the other three. It just time got away from me. For those that don't know, Succession was a four season uh, show on HBO, which. Think of something like the Murdochs or any kind of media mogul dynasty, and it's basically that. It's a succession of family trying to take over. Uh, It's the Roy family, so Brian Cox is the matriarch. He runs his own media company, and as he's looking to wind down, as his health is dwindling, he's getting older, he may pass it down. All of his kids are kind of gunning for that spot, and he has radically different age children. One of them is very old, like I believe in his late 40s, early 50s, and then the other ones, you know, range from late 20s to early 20s or so, uh, or early 30s and so. And it's just, first off, you, you mentioned about Lawrence being possibly a despicable character and no hard feelings. These are despicable human beings, and the show knows <laughs> that, and that's part of its... Charm. Charm. Uh, charm seems to be... I mean, I guess that would work, though, because all these people can charm you, especially like a Kieran Culkin, but we're seeing them in their ugliness, like off-camera, where you just, you're just you just seeing these absolutely despicable people. But what is so brilliant about this show, outside of the fact that it can rattle off so many twists and turns for each season and midway through the seasons and all of it works, even in this, this final season, is the fact that it is at its core a show about gaslighting. And what is brilliant about it is, even though you know in the back of your mind that all these characters are terrible, they don't make them caricatures or they, they 
toe that line, but you actually see them being human beings and you almost start to feel for them at times before you, you know, another twist comes or you just kind of get that realization that even if they are human beings, they're, they're not like you and I, they are, they come from billionaire families, you know, almost like trust fund kids that they, they are detached from the world and they have fun with that, especially with Kendall Roy and his uh, hip hop obsession. You've got also without them, you have uh, character actors such as Fisher Stevens popping up, who also pops up in our movie today. Um, he pops up in this, and you also have our favorite Nicholas Braun. He's he's also he's mm-hmm. actually a cousin of the family, but he kind of ends up becoming the de facto buddy to uh, Sarah Snook's husband in the show. So they have like these side plots that work really well, and it's just terrific dynamic, and it's very funny. That's the the biggest thing with the show is it can be very dark in its humor, but it's very fucking funny. Like Kieran Culkin steals the show all the time. Is this just? I don't, well, Brian Cox is the cantankerous one. He is the more lewd, doesn't give a shit, very sarcastic youngest of all the kids, but also clearly has parental issues, daddy issues and that. <laughs> and it's just, I know, I urge everyone to check it out. I don't want to even discuss much of the fourth season because you'd have to kind of talk about the other seasons. Just know that this, I am not somebody who watches shows that often. It's hard for me to keep up, but after a lot of people on various podcasts and in just our community repping for this, I think it was our good friend Randy was the final nail in the coffin for me. That was just like, all right, I, I actually want to watch the show. I'm going to give this an opportunity. It, it takes over your life, especially if you, in my opinion, make the mistake of binging because then you just don't want to watch, stop watching it instead of doing something else. And they're hour long episodes. Highly, highly recommended. It. It's all up on Max, uh, HBO Max, for those who still aren't used to the new change. Um, yeah, I just, Jose, eventually, uh, I'm curious. This will be my Charlie's Angel to you. Uh, I yeah. hope that you get to it sometime soon because I, I think you would really enjoy it. Yeah, I heard it is. Uh... It's funny. It's sort of, it's mentioned, and I guess only just by comparison for subject matter, like you talked about the Murdochs, it's often mentioned, say, with the Kardashians in the same mm-hmm. breath, because it has an almost reality feel to it, because, you know, the family is corporate and like public facing. And yet behind the scenes, there's like all of this crazy drama. I think I even read something about. I don't know about the cousin uh, about um, the cousin Greg character going to some there's like a recital or something and then maybe something involving drugs. I don't know. But some of it sounds very, very comedically like Mm -hmm. extreme. And I I honestly can't wait to start to start binging it. I know it's it's only five seasons, but actually just four. So. Is it four? Okay, I thought it was five. But yeah, Randy also has been like, you got to see it, you got to see it, you got to see it. He's also currently repping for The Blackening, which I have not gotten to yet. But I, he's like, I actually did. You I used, need to see it. I did my regal to do a double of that in The Boogeyman, which Blackening was very much worth seeing. The Boogeyman almost worked, but I'll just keep it brief. I'll, I'll steal your, firm, your phrase, not entirely successful. I think the actual horror oh. elements of that movie don't work with the actual drama, but... Um, but yeah, definitely highly, highly recommend Succession. And it's funny because you, you said about Kardashians, any dynasty or any, I mean, I, I was a wrestling fan. The McMahon family keeps getting brought up. I remember when after Vince left, but then he kind of came back earlier this year, like it, flaunting his power. Everybody started making memes with the Succession theme song because it's, yeah. it's, they 
cherry pick from so many things and it's so uh it's just it's so good yes that will wrap us up so that will bring us into our today's feature which does feature from succession fisher stevens in a very brief role but that is asteroid city which is wes anderson's latest film before we begin uh jose why don't you talk about wes anderson and some of the other people that are working behind the scenes Okay, so Asteroid City, below the line, we have our, our I'm going to call him an outdoor, even though, full confession, I have not seen any, ugh, such a blind spot. I have not seen, wow. other than Bottle Rocket, I have not seen any of the other Wes Anderson movies. And that includes Rushmore, which I've seen parts of on the, cab- the cable. Um, which I've seen parts of on cable, but I have never seen all the way through. Um, But Wes Anderson is a, he was born in Texas. Uh, He has indicated that when his parents divorced, that that was sort of a huge shift change for him. Uh, He eventually went to St. John's, which was a private prep school in Houston, Texas. And obviously that proved to be the inspiration for Rushmore. Um, He met Owen Wilson at the University of Texas in Austin, and they got together along with the Brothers Wilson. I'm just going to call them the Brothers Wilson from now on because I I just I love that. I think it's great. yeah, but uh, he he met Owen Wilson at university. They did a short in 1994, which was screened at Sundance Film Festival. Not only was it successfully received, but that they received the funding for a full-length feature, and that feature would eventually become 1996 Bottle Rocket, which I have seen. And one of his fans, Martin Scorsese, I think maybe you've heard of these this this director people Who? um but martin scorsese he the- directed the avengers oh no, I was, I was like, dang it um, you beat me to the marvel joke now i'm angry no, but, but, uh, <laughs> uh, so martin scorsese has come out as a fan of both bottle rocket and rushmore and uh more to the point most recently rushmore in addition to being in the Criterion Collection, Anderson actually has a ton of films in the Criterion Collection, but it was also added to the National National Registry for films that have cultural, historical, or aesthetic significance. So uh, just right off the bat, you know, Rushmore being one of his like second films ever, that's quite the accomplishment for Mr. Anderson. I've always lumped Wes Anderson in with filmmakers like Witt Stillman, if you guys are familiar with him, uh, who did like Metropolitan or The Last Days of Disco or even Noah Baumbach, um, which not really mumblecore, but just this sort of like emotional, realistic uh, set, visual style set types of performances. Um, but Anderson really is his own auteur because he has quite the distinct visual style. His most famous films, obviously we mentioned The Rushmore, of course, but I think people would probably know him most for The Royal Tenenbaums from 2001, as well as Moonrise Kingdom in 2012, and then 2014's The Grand Budapest Hotel. Each of these films has garnered him not only critical, but also some financial success. Not all of his films do that well. Um, But in the respect of Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel, he was nominated for Golden Globes and Oscars for not only best screenwriting, but also for directing. I think The Tenenbaums, which has an amazing cast, uh, was only nominated for best original screenplay. Um, in between those, he has made the film after after Rushmore. There was the Royal Tenenbaums, 
Follow that up with The Life Aquatic with Steve Zaizu uh, that had Bill Murray in it. 2007's The Darjeeling Limited. He's also made some forays into stop motion or claymation. Actually, I think it's stop motion. Um, how dare I say claymation? Yeah, it's um, 100% stop motion, both of the two. Yeah. Those films are The Fantastic Mr. Fox, also nominated for Best Animated um, Film, both at the Globes and the Oscars. And then Isle of Dogs, that was the most recent recent stop motion in 2018. Um, he also released The French Dispatch in 2021. Unfortunately, that was sort of as we were coming out of the pandemic. So I think people were creeping back into the theaters at that point. Um, I didn't know this, but he's also shot a number of different artistic shorts, which have sh uh, shown either on the internet or at festivals. And I'm kind of looking at uh, something called Cast Castello Cavalcanti, um, Cousin Ben Troop Screening with Jason Schwartzman, uh, Hotel Chevalier, which was a short in 2007. Pretty sure that's maybe related to the Grand Budapest Hotel. He's also done advertisements for... Everything from like Prada, uh, the comp the fashion company Prada, um, to uh, I want to say American Express. Yeah, uh, he's done a SoftBank and an American Express uh, commercial. Did so he also do a McDonald's commercial, or my or something to do with McDonald's? Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. I, I almost just said Stella Artois, which has nothing to do with McDonald's. <laughs> oh, it's coming to McDonald's soon. They, remember when they tried remodeling so they were fancier like Starbucks, which is already a laugh, but that's their next step. It is step. <laughs> already a laugh. But I have to tell you, if alcohol comes to McDonald's, that is when I stop going to McDonald's. Okay. Um, but uh, no, no, I, I'm not sure about the McDonald's commercial. He might have maybe in Japan. You know how they love to go overseas and, and do stuff. One other curious thing about this is that Mr. Anderson appears to be one of those directors who works with sort of a playhouse of actors who waltz in and out. And so with these films, you will see a number of actors repeated either in bigger roles or smaller roles. And so, you know, Ben Stiller, uh, Steve Carell, Bill Murray, uh, Timothee Chalamet, uh, Jason Schwartzman in particular, um, he is also he has also worked with Anderson co-screenwriting many of his films. I believe it was the last three that he helped to co-write as well. The French Dispatch, um, the Grand Budapest Hotel, and Moonrise Kingdom. Anderson also works with Roman Coppola. It's probably Roman, but I think Roman sounds much better. Um, I will is, say this. There's a character on Succession called Roman, and it's Roman, not Roman. That is Kieran Culkin's character. Well, okay. <laughs> I do so, prefer Roman, though. But uh, Well, I think that's how an Italian would pronounce it Probably. anyway. Roman Coppola, Roman Coppola is Romain Francis Ford Coppola. Romain Lettuce Coppola. <laughs> is, is Francis Ford Coppola's son, so obviously some connections. And curiously enough, Jason Schwartzman is also the cousin of Roman Coppola, considering that his mother is Talia Shire. Yo, Adrian! Um, and so they obviously know each other from very, very close circles and have worked together. And Roman Coppola is in fact the writer, co-writer of this film with Wes Anderson, who also produces just a couple more below the line. Our uh, music composer is Alexandre Desplat, and he is like a seven-time uh, uh, Academy Award-nominated Oscar-winning composer. You probably know him from films like Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, 
um, for which I think he was actually nominated as well. He has composed the music for a number of Wes Anderson films, as well as films like The Shape of Water, American Pastoral, The Danish Girl, a lot of Oscar-nominated stuff. And of course, Red's favorite, the 2014's Godzilla. Yeah! (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Also, his score for Zero Dark Thirty, which you would not think would be a great score, is actually Mm -hmm. a great score. Um, Another shout-out that I want to call out is one of my favorite people in the world. Her name is Milena Cananero. She is a costume designer who I remember seeing her costumes for... Uh, Dick Tracy, The Hunger, Chariots of Fire. Well, you know, the short shorts. What can I say? What can I say, guys? Um, But she's also been the costume designer for seminal films like A Clockwork Orange or Barry Lyndon, Midnight Express. Um, And so she is a masterful costume designer. She has designed almost all the costumes for Wes Anderson's films, as well as films like the Wolfman. She was actually the production designer for um, Barbet Schroeder's Single White Female. And if you've ever seen that movie, just the sort of gothic architecture of the apartments and the internal production design of it, it it was just, it's beautiful and masterful, almost like like the crowded mind of a psycho, which is like the Jennifer Lace, Jason Lay character who goes nuts. So she only has a couple production designer credits last summer in 2014 and then single white female. She's pre- predominantly a costume designer, but I love her. The costumes in this, no matter how I feel about the movie, the costumes in this are, are beyond amazing. Like they're just... They're just perfect. They belong in a museum. Anyway, enough about that. And then my other, my other <laughs> shout out is, my other shout out is the DP Robert D. Yeoman. Um, so this cat is pretty interesting. He started as a cinematographer, working his way up in the camera department, as you will in in the industry. In 1983, he directed a film called Hero. Uh, directed by Alexander Rockwell. This was, it, it, the logline goes, a disabled teenager and his two adoptive sisters embark on a trip across the United States. Bored of their anonymous existence in a big city, their destination is Truth or Consequences, a town with a name that says it all. So in 1983, he shot that movie and then hooked up with William Friedkin, the William Friedkin folks, and directed a TV movie called Cat Squad. Um, now that one, curiously enough, starred... Uh, Joe Cortese, Jack Youngblood. These are some like, you know, 80s, high 80s actors, right? Um, And then he also directed a little known Friedkin film called Rampage about a serial killer. If you haven't seen that, it's it's fantastic and creepy and scary. That that starred Michael Bean and Alex MacArthur. Didn't mean to cut you off, but did that ever get anything past a DVD release? Or I don't even know, did that even get a DVD release, Rampage? Because there was some like, I think it was similar to Looking for Mr. Goodbar where there might have been like music rights issues or some kind of issue that was preventing it from a wider release post the theatrical. There was. And I think, honestly, it it had been advertised and it may not have even hit the theaters at all. So I remember Mm -hmm. seeing it on VHS. (laughs) Um. But Yeoman did go on to be the cinematographer, obviously, for a lot of Wes Anderson films, but many will know him for his photography, working with uh, Gus Van Sant on um, uh, Drugstore Cowboy, and I believe he did another film of Van Sant's as well. He's also worked with other auteurs, uh, Noah Baumbach, The Squid and the Whale. He shot Wes Craven's Red Eye. Um, He... 
shot the recent Ghostbusters, the all-female Ghostbusters, mm -hmm. and he's a great cinematographer. Also kind of knows his comedy as well. He was the DP for Bridesmaids, Get Him to the Greek and Whip It, and Yes Man. I know you love Jim Carrey. Mm -hmm. uh, yes Man was kind of fun. Yeah, that was um, a fun little throwback. Wasn't great, but it was like the flip side to Liar Liar. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, he's also shot the films Johnny B. Good with Anthony Michael Hall and one of Troy's favorite films, Dead Heat. Yeah, from Recipe's with, Treat Williams. Yes, with Treat Williams and the inimitable Joe Piscopo, or Piscopo, as the, um, <laughs> as the uh, chat GPT called him when, they, when, they, did the, uh, when they did the little like uh, uh, review. Yeah, uh, I love that chat GPT thing when they do it. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah, that's that's our below the line and read to you with All this right. packed cast. Well, right? like you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, these casts are always big. Royal Tenenbaums was big. Wes Anderson has a lot of friends in high places. So for the interest of time, I decided to for this capsule overview just focus on what i consider the main families and like two characters that kind of had their own subplot coming so a lot of your bigger actors such as your c corrals and them we're going to talk about them in the review proper but i'll save their little resume build for another time so uh leading uh one of the families as augie steenbeck is the reliable Wes Anderson familiar, Jason Schwartzman, and you can listen to our Across the Spider-Verse episode for my review of his career. Playing his son, Woodrow Steenbeck, is Jake Ryan. He has worked with Wes Anderson before in films like Moonrise Kingdom and the stop-motion stop animation. Stop-motion should be what they call it. I just oh, yes. I came across Coin something. It. I'm copywriting Coin it right now. It. <laughs> Isle of Dogs. <laughs> He was also in the excellent eighth grade. He had a, a, I believe it was a pretty small part in Uncut Gems, Inside Lewin Davis, which was also great, and The Innkeepers. I can't believe he's never been in a Wes Anderson movie until now. Tom Hanks is Stanley Zack. Uh, he is the father or the stepfather of Augie Steenbeck, uh, Academy Award nominated and winning actor for films such as Forrest Gump, Philadelphia, Saving Private Ryan, Castaway, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Big, but also mainly getting his start in comedies around that time, such as Bachelor Party, Splash, one of my favorites, The Burbs, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, Apollo 13, Toy Story, and the recent Elvis which I know you had a divisive performance, but I don't know. I thought he, I had fun with the scenery chewing in that play. He was good. I think he should be, I think he's pretty much a national treasure right now. Yes. Would you agree? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. He is the national, he is the one that whenever people say, if so-and-so was revealed to be a bad person, when you find that out, like that would actually break their hearts. He's like on the short list of people who are like, oh, that would actually be tragic if it turned out he was an asshole. So yeah, totally. And re and recently they would like ask him to opine on certain things. And it's kind of like, they're baiting. Him. Why are we doing this? But, but there you go. There's the national. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's, it's baiting. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. So, right. <laughs> uh, playing Midge Campbell, uh, another family that is in asteroid city is Scarlett Johansson. Also an Oscar nominated actress, uh, most known for playing black widow in the Avengers films and the subsequent solo film, uh, Jojo rabbit in marriage story, which I believe she got Oscars for both of those actually in the same year, if I'm correct. Uh, nominations, I should say. Oscar noms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, she is in the Terrific Ghost World, Lost in Translation. So she worked with Bill Murray, who is normal Wes Anderson's mainstay. He was not in this film. Uh, her, Under the Skin, Chef, 
Lucy, The Prestige, The Island, and The Horse Whispers, one of her earlier ones. She also, I remember, was in Home Alone 3. That was one of her first roles. A horrible mm-hmm. movie I saw called My Brother the Pig, which is, you know, yeah, which is pretty terrible. And she's also in Eight-Legged Freaks, which I do enjoy despite being an arachnophobe. Uh yeah, I can't believe you can actually watch that because well, I think her scene with the web it is, terrifying. is one of the most distressing. But what helps with that is since it's giant spiders and it's all CGI, one, it's easier to handle once they're big, and two, I can go, well, that's never, gravity won't allow that to happen, but arachnophobia or any of the ones where it's just regular-sized spiders, those freak me out more because they can be right there. Yeah, <laughs> call the man of steel. Yeah, exactly. I got to call Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Uh, playing her daughter, Dinah, is Grace Edwards. She's an upcoming actress. Her only big film right now has been called Jane. So be curious to see where she goes, because I thought she was a natural here. Oh, yeah. She's fantastic. Playing Sandy Borden is Hope Davis. Uh, she uh, was in films such as American Splendor, About Schmidt, Synodoc, New York, which is fabulous. She also had some Avengers or MCU cred. She popped up in Captain America Civil War. She was in Real Steel, Greenland, The Day Trippers, Hearts in Atlantis. She was with my hero, Nicolas Cage, and The Weatherman, as well as Proof. And then playing her husband is Liv Schreiber as J.J. Kellogg. I probably mispronounced that name. I always do. Liev. Uh, Liev. I actually thought I mispronounced Schreiber as well, but I think I actually got that correct. Uh, (laughs) Most known, Scream, Spotlight, the Manchurian Candidate remake. Uh, He was Sabretooth and X-Men Origins Wolverine, one of the few good things about that movie. Uh, Oh, yeah. I'm surprised. I was waiting for you to defend it. I'm glad you aren't. Uh, I hate that movie. Good. Uh, Into the (laughs) Spider-Verse, so he's in the first one, and then Schwartzman was in the sequel. Repo Man, which Jose keeps repping, so maybe I'll eventually get to. Uh, Goon and its subsequent sequel, Defiance, Sphere, Ransom, another big favorite of Jose's that I finally watched, Party Girl. He was also in the Day Trippers, and he was also the bomb in Phantom Joe. Uh, and then Phantom's like a mother motherfucker. <laughs> and then I wanted to give two shout outs because like Liv and Hope, they are the parents to some of the other kids that we might talk about. But a subplot between uh, two characters. One is June, who is basically like this um, like grade school teacher that is taking them on this field trip. She's played by the Maya Hawk, who is the daughter of Ethan Hawk and Uma Thurman, and you could definitely see it. Most known, yeah. obviously recurring role on Stranger Things as well as another Netflix well movie but it was like a movie series Fear Street as well as Do Revenge and then a film that Jose and I both rep very hard he introduced it to me Mainstream with Andrew Garfield wonderful wonderful film and then playing Montana who isn't so much a love interest but is like this weird kind of cowboy character that keeps running into her is Rupert Friend he is no stranger to Wes Anderson as he was on his previous film The French Dispatch as well as the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice The Death of Stalin Hitman Agent 47 which I believe Jose is a fan of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas uh, A Simple Favor which is actually really good that has Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively and most known uh, recurring role on the long running Homeland series he is so good in homeland i'm just gonna rep that he is fantastic also just as an aside liev schreiber is part ukrainian bingo yeah that's and then i and then did you did you mention that he was cotton weary in the scream films i did yeah that was the first one i said i said that was okay i think that's what me and everyone else probably knew from him first i mean that was in my opinion his breakout role so yeah definitely definitely So that will wrap it up again. There's a lot of other big names that we're going to get to. Some of it, I mean, I know all of these people were promoted, but I didn't know going in who they would be playing. So some of them are kind of spoilerish to say who they play. And again, we're going to get to them. 
for sake of time, I think those are your main focus. All the other characters kind of surround these three troops, basically. So, yeah. Jose, you yes. dropped a bombshell to me and then on this show that outside of Bottle Rocket, you were a stranger to Wes Anderson, which blew my mind. And you had asked originally, those don't know when he was texting, Jose loves to do research for shows and like rewatch anything if there's a series coming up. So he goes, what are some movies you recommend? And I said, honestly, and we said it at the same time. This is a unique perspective to not know Wes Anderson. I think you should go in blind, and that's what you did. So as somebody who, because Bottle Rocket is very much a Wes Anderson movie, but it was his first, so it's not what stylized what people think of Wes Anderson. So now that this is your first peak Wes Anderson film, I guess you could say, stylistically, what were your spoiler-free thoughts? How did you take to this? So, um, yeah, he's been, I don't, I don't understand why. Probably because I'd rather watch like Electra and Morbius than say, <laughs> you know, Moon, Moonrise Kingdom or the Royal Tannenbaums. But um, obviously, you know, you, you know, a million people can't be wrong that this man is is a filmmaker at heart. And I think so. My reaction to this is that yes, he in fact is probably just even based on one film okay i haven't seen the other ones but even just based on this i can already see that wes anderson is probably one of our preeminent or like best american filmmakers um just because you know his vision is so singular in this and the way that he has shot it the way that he has um used his visual narrative for this film i mean for me it's it was so compelling i i mean obviously i had no idea what to expect and we've got changing formats we have color and then black and white we've got this colorful quote-unquote asteroid city and then we'll certainly talk about this later not to to give anything away because i'm not you know you know me when when we do movie reviews like i think it's a waste of time to give the listener is a summary because they can always go somewhere to read the summary or exactly. can just go to the damn movie, right? <laughs> that is my um, theory when I do my capsule reviews. I will try not exactly. to give you because Google exists, folks. Right. I mean, why waste the word space on a summary? Anyway, so <laughs> um, just to say this, this is one of those, this is an artistic vision that's sort of like a story within a story. And that's all I'll say until we get to the spoiler. But all of that was really handled extremely well. Um, but much like George Miller's uh, uh, 50,000 Shades of Longing. <laughs> I was about to that. correct you, but that's a much better title. <laughs> I guess it is. I think people would have gone to see it if it was called that. <laughs> yeah. But um, but that, that you know what we're talking about, the George Miller movie that we had reviewed um, I'm going to splinter my opinion and say that the film lover in me, the hoity-toity, this is fantastic art, the artsy-fartsy person in me had a visual orgasm watching this film. And even, even the film itself, like I, I really did enjoy this film, but I'm splintering my opinion because while that made me happy, I can tell you that the three girls sitting to my right were yawning and checking their cell phone the entire time. And I was just like, it's a matinee. Wake the fuck up. But then 
maybe they didn't know who Wes Anderson was either, but it's possible because and it's weird if they would have went by themselves because I, I saw this opening night with a pretty packed crowd and everyone mm-hmm. seemed to enjoy it. But when I was leaving one of the, the women who sounded like, cause she was a couple rows down for me. It sounded like she knew what she was getting into as well, but I'm thinking maybe her boyfriend might've been the fan. Cause she said it was cute, but it was too artsy for me. And I, I just thought it was James Franco in the battle of Buster Scruggs going first time. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. yes. Totally. And so, like I said, I, from a filmmaking perspective, like I would say that Anderson is most certainly a force to reckon with almost like a, almost like a playwright or like a literate novel born as a filmmaker, if that that makes sense. Or maybe I'm flipping that around Uh, a filmmaker who almost operates like a a, a novelist or a screen or a a playwright. Um, So in that respect, I, I absolutely loved it. I think that there are some pacing issues, but if I'm to read this correctly, this is Wes Anderson's style. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like get on board with the pacing or, you know, check out like the women did next to me. Uh, performances are are pretty fantastic. Once I got over the, oh, so-and-so, oh, hey, there's XXX. Oh my God, I love that actor, da, 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 or whatever. Once I got over all of that, I mean, it, it literally felt like, I don't know, like a red carpet at the Oscars, right? You're like, oh, there's that actor or this and that or whatever. Um, Willem Dafoe in black and white. Um, once I got over that and settled into the story itself, I, I still don't know what it all means. I think, I think I got the message. Um, and this might even be, because there's so many characters, it, it's hard to wonder, were we supposed to follow Jason Schwartzman on on this is he the main character or is it really everybody is it really a commentary about you know life imitating art imitating life or is this a character's singular journey within the universe of this art within art within a story within a story and I wasn't quite sure like like Scooter afterwards was like I don't think I can put into words how I feel about this movie. So just start talking about it. And maybe I'll be able to, you know, piggyback on some of your comments. Um, but it's, it's one of those films. And I think I get the message, but the film is so wonderfully and artfully crafted and acted, even in its distinct quirky and eccentric way that I would actually go back and see this again, just because there's so many wonderful things to see in the background and look at. Um, So as my first Wes Anderson experience, I actually kind of dug it and it, it, I mean, it didn't, feel profound or anything like that but as a piece of filmic art i was absolutely on board and i enjoyed it um i didn't think i would i absolutely did not think i would um maybe because i i'd heard so much that was bad about the life aquatic and then i heard people was definitely his most divisive i remember when it came out like i had i mean my cousin loved it which makes more sense because he was a little bit more into like underground or arts type film, but like that and yeah. even Royal Tenenbaums. I mean, that was the first West Anderson movie I saw and spoiler, it was because my parents rented it because of the cast. It didn't right. like it. And before they returned it, they were like, if you want to give it a shot. So I gave it a shot and it worked more on me than it did them. So 
And then I didn't hear great things about the Darjeeling Limited. And then everybody was like, oh my God, you have to see the fantastic Mr. Fox. And I'm like, it's stop motion. Why am I gonna why are you gonna see why am I gonna go see stop motion? Um, because it's amazing. How dare you? As a as an artistic person and a lover of the I, arts, yeah. stop motion. I know. But I'm just saying in the context of now Wes Anderson's doing stop motion. So anyway, see, I'm adopting your term, by the yeah, way. Yeah, which is um, great. And if anything, by the time he did that, it was just like, well, yeah, that makes the most sense. It was like when Del Toro did Pinocchio. I'm like, yeah, his style works perfectly with a stop motion. Yeah. By the way, if, if anyone has never seen what Wes Anderson looks like, he looks like Tilda Swinton's brother. Like, that's all <laughs> I can think of now when I look at him. I'm like, I'm like, are you related to Tilda Swinton? Is that why you cast her? Um, but what anyway, if, I, I really if, did enjoy this. So what if he that? is Tilda Swinton? Because I don't know if we've ever seen him and Tilda. Like, what if that's a secret now? <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> that would, uh... Yeah. So what about you? Your so spoiler thoughts. I am a, spoiler free thoughts. I am a Wes Anderson fan. I wouldn't consider myself a big fan. But like I said, I, I came to Royal Tenenbaums mainly because my parents didn't like it. And I was I didn't love it. Because I was still kind of young, but I think that was one of my introductions to like art house type cinema, and I was more beguiled by it than anything, and I've grown to love it over time. Uh, then would you know seek out Rushmore and Bottle Rocket for me. I mean, Fantastic Mr. Fox and Moonrise Kingdom are probably his two best. For the longest time, mine actually favorite was the Darjeeling Limited, and I would put it pretty much up, still high up there. I will say at that time, though, was when I was getting into my snarky, snarkiest, so some of it was just, <laughs> most other people didn't seem to like it, so I just had to like it to be a contrarian. But one of the things I think I liked about Darjeeling Limited and what I liked about this without going into spoilers is that both of those films are very introspective to Wes Anderson. Um, yeah they're coming at a time where his style was kind of being defined. Uh, now I'd say even more so here because he's always played with like, obviously the colors and different formats, but I think ever since grand Budapest hotel, it's really come into form. Like even in a, st a stop nation films, it's very much, I mean, Isle of dogs really feels like the animated version of this, where it's just a who's who red carpet. And that's one criticism I have of some of his big films like I Grand Budapest seems to be one of the more regarded ones and I've grown to love it more but when I first saw it I enjoyed it but I thought it was just too much of him and it's mm. funny because maybe it's since I knew that going in with Asteroid City that because you can compare it to that as being too much characters but I think it kind of works especially with how he ends up structuring everything and why all of these families are here, not just for this science fair in this asteroid city desert town as a clear throwback to 50 sci-fi movies and kitschy art and all of that. Um, but yeah, I just, as introspection, just on art and on his himself, I think this was really intriguing. Uh, and it's just, it's a lot of fun. It's, there's a lot of laughs in this movie and he's no stranger to his like quirky kind of comedy. And I, I really was going to try not to say quirky, but it's hard not to, it, it so perfectly defines his sensibilities and especially his dialogue. And it's why he probably works with the likes of Schwartzman and all them. And then it's like, yeah, it's surprising that Tom Hanks has never been in one because he can handle this kind of do uh, dialogue with a plum. Like he has a lot of fun as the stepfather. I didn't mention them because they're very young, but like he had Schwartzman has very young daughters and they kind of oh just God. tag along They're with hanks a lot and yeah they want to be like witches and that which i'm like yeah man i like these kids you know i'd have these <laughs> kids but like the whole and this is in the trailer the whole bit of like 
Schwartzman hasn't told his kids that, yeah, your mother passed. And the way that he handles that is quirky and humorous. But then you have Hanks doing this like weird bit with the kids who are like, you know, they're too young to understand what death is. So he's trying to explain it to him. And like he has a lot of fun. And just on that front, even if you didn't want to dig any deeper or it didn't want to dig any deeper and it just wants to be this quirky comedy, I think it works. It, I'm glad to see that you liked it, though, because I really do feel like Darjeeling Limited. This is so much a almost love letter to himself, but an introspection on himself that I'm like, if this is one of your first movies, maybe some of the deeper elements won't work. But as I've pondered on them more, I think what he does without getting into spoilers to make the, the introspection work is he still makes it not just about himself, but art as a whole. And like you said our roles in society and in art and all of that, who is main character? Are we playing with the idea of having a main character or what an ensemble is supposed to be? Cause you have people like Matt Dillon, Steve Carell and them kind of popping up, especially Carell who just always pops in and out. And it's like an extended cameo basically as the hotel manager is the mechanic, but yeah. it's a delight to see them. There is. And I wonder if he's always been doing this, but especially here, if intentionally casting these really notable even character actors, you said like Tilda Swinton here, Fisher Stevens pops up. I know for like the general public, they might they might recognize him now from like Succession and that, but they might not know of him when they tried kind of making him a star in the eighties and nineties. I've always liked Fisher Stevens, um, Me but too. like, but for us like film fans, you know he's also kind of in there because we're gonna notice that we're gonna be like, oh yeah, Fisher Stevens, you know, and all these other people. Is that in and of itself a commentary, or is he just like working with them? I, I think when we get to spoilers, we'll we'll throw out a lot of our commentary. But it, this is just a fun movie, though. I, I, Anderson, what draws me to him is that style. And I get somebody maybe being overwhelmed by it because he really lays it on thick. But man, as somebody who does just like you loves film, the shots in this, there's because they have these where they're all staying in Asteroid City is this hotel. But there's these little like almost like really small houses or townhouses, but it's like two rooms. And this is his quirky sense of humor. He has them sometimes meeting up at the communal showers. But when you glimpse into these rooms, they all have bathtubs and showers. So what's right. the point of a communal so shower? So why are you at the com- Yeah, it's, it's very just, strange. It, it, but I think it's, it's a commentary about that. It's a right? commentary. And it's also just a joke. Like that's a funny observation that we would still go to these. And, you know, you have Corral mentioning like one of them has to have a tent because he tried wiring like new technology because it's set in the 50s and it said it blew it up. And they're like, well, we don't want a tent because well, I understand you don't. But <laughs> but, yeah, but you've only got a tent. But <laughs> but yeah. there's a great shot between because you have kind of like a love interest going on between Jason Schwartzman, uh, who is this war photographer, and then Scar Johansson, who is Midge, this actress, and they're stationed next to each other. So there's these nice long shots where, you know, you see these widescreen shots of him on the left and her on the right, and you see the, the background of this just lush, but you can tell it's almost like a matte painting and that that's purposeful. It's supposed to remind you of those old Hollywood films where you'd have matte paintings that acted as the background, but they still looked gorgeous. Just to yeah. look at this movie is very funny. And there are just so many bits of dialogue, like I mentioned, that are funny. The stuff with the mechanic with Matt Dillon when he first arrives and he's like, well, you've got two things. It could be like, this very easy fix or it can be this very costly thing. Well, what's it going to be? We're going to find out. And then, of course, you know, everything goes arrive but how it does is very funny it's if you can't take to wes anderson like like you said uh, jose especially with his pacing i don't begrudge anybody but i also respect the fact that anderson even if he's commenting on himself and maybe maybe criticizing his own style at times or like going overboard with it 
I like the fact that you have somebody that is so distinctive. You know you were seeing a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, there was a TikTok trend recently, which I know I don't think Wes was the biggest fan of, which he has every right to be, but it was the idea was you used the song from, I actually think it might have been Grand Budapest Hotel, but it was what if my life was a Wes Anderson movie? Because it has such a distinct style to him that, I mean, Saturday Night Live poked fun of it when Edward Norton, who is uh, also a frequent, he is in this, but he's also a frequent (laughs) collaborator uh, recently with, with Wes Anderson. He did the bit where it's like, what if Wes Anderson made a horror movie, which was very clever and funny. And that's a good thing to to be this distinctive. Maybe there's an argument to be made that he doesn't always get out of that comfort zone. But then again, should he? Because, I mean, I was looking forward to Asteroid City. I haven't seen a lot of his movies on the big screen for whatever reason. So as much as I want to be like, I can't believe you haven't seen him for whatever reason. I just, even Moonrise Kingdom, which I loved, I just didn't see in the theaters. The only reason I saw Isle of Dogs in theaters is because I had a friend who wanted to see it as well. So that got me to go out. It wasn't like... He is such a cinematic filmmaker. It screams like it always plays near me. So why don't I see all of his movies on the big screen? Yeah, you know what I mean, he's the, he is the type of filmmaker where you really do need to even regardless of how you feel about his films themselves, you really do need to see it on the big screen because, you know, watching, you know, like you just talked about watching Jason Schwarzman on one end of the screen in 235.1. And actually, it's probably not 235. It's probably like two to whatever. Um, it's a smaller ratio than that, but like, um, or a larger ratio than that. And then Scarlett Johansson on the far right with all that stuff in the background, you won't get that feeling if you watch it on your own television or a phone or a tablet. And so he he definitely works with the cinematic landscape in mind. But the reason why I splinter my opinion, which I actually didn't in the spoiler free, but I'm going to do now, I think the normal film goer, and I'm talking about your let's go see the next Marvel movie or the uh, maybe they'll do a, a a drama film about like racism or a crime film or something like that. I think that type of general film goer may not take to this and they may be bored by this and they may not like the pacing and they may come out and be like, what did we just watch? Why did I waste an hour and 44 minutes? And so to that film goer, right? So for every fan who loves, you know, John Carpenter, Steven Spielberg and David Fincher, there are other film fans who like say, Lars von Trier or, um, you know, Paolo Pasolini, you know, it's, this is for those type, the, the art house von Trier types and not necessarily for the commercial may dip my toes into some indie stuff, because I think that kind of filmmaker is our, uh, film consumer is not going to take to this. They're just not. While I do agree, I will say out of all of the more underground Wes Anderson would arguably be one of the more accessible just because outside of having big cast, they might still vibe to some of the humor that True. Might not, like, so I see where you're coming from and I agree, but I will give that caveat of like, if for whatever reason you're trying to get somebody into that, this might be an easier way of doing it. I think really it just comes down to you, how much whimsy almost, or how much quirkiness as much as I hate to use that word sometimes because it's such an easy or or centric how much of that can you take because he is he's not going to ever pull back as much as maybe he sometimes should maybe he shouldn't but I mean this one is doing 
as it has done before, like it's doing well enough for his types of films. I don't know if it'll turn a profit because this costs twenty five million, probably because of the cast. But it's doing like I well, mean, and just just that production design. Yeah. Apparently, this was filmed in Spain, which I was like, okay, Canada, New Mexico, where are we? Spain. Yeah. Um, and then they had to film this. They had to construct this diorama. There's a very specific look to the film. Um, and speaking of his his film style, this is why. Like, this is pure, let's apply what we learned in film school. But, you know, it's it's better than that. Like, I think naysayers can easily say, well, you just paid attention in composition class and this mm-hmm. is all you're doing, right? Because it's, especially with this, and I think it dovetails with the story, which we'll get into in our next section, but it's filmed very proscenium-like, like a theater, Mm-hmm. And you only get a pan to the left or a pan to the right. That's it. And there are some push-ins and push-outs, but generally he's letting everything play out on this sort of like theater type mm-hmm. um, uh, aspect ratio. And he does, and, but I think it works for that. Yeah, and he does it yeah. in a way where he's not going to be like spell everything out for you, but he's also like, even to a regular film go where they would might not be able to pick up what he's trying to say, but they're going to understand has something to do with art in that because he's not completely hiding behind that. I would say one of the criticisms I initially had a grand Budapest and I know others did was he went really crazy with all the different aspect ratios and everything. And that one, and I'm sure the more I think about it, that was the point, not just to be, for his style, but to make a commentary, but it wasn't the commentary wasn't as overt as it is here to say, mm-hmm. to, to turn a phrase. And I, I did feel in that one, it almost did feel like everything I've learned in composition is to where here it had much more of a point. And it was, even if maybe the commentary itself wasn't obvious, the fact that there was a point to be made is obvious and how he structured this and he, how he opens the film right off the bat. I saw somebody say that it's not, quite like what you're expecting from the ads but it's still not going to like it's not gonna be like oh you sold me a bill of goods that we didn't get you still got that bill of goods but there's a little bit more going on underneath this as opposed to just being this quirky uh you know science fair thing impossible alien invasion that's hinted at in asteroid city uh, in the trailers of asteroid city um so yeah yeah, Yeah, some of it i don't i don't i haven't dived into it but i like watching this, I was, I, my feelings were that it was almost like Edward Hopper, who's, who's this fantastic painter. Um, it was like Edward Hopper meets tops trading cards, you know, the Mars attacks or whatever, like, and, mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. it has that look, it has that, it's not day glow, but, but kind of an old color palette before we started getting into digital and digging mm-hmm. into striations of red and green. Yeah. It has that old like color palette that it, even it's to a, a degree, neat, it's a neat look even to a, not as much, but kind of like a technicolor as well too, with some of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. De- absolutely. Some of those but long like, shots and, but what I appreciated about his style, at least in this film is that uh, I'm the kind of, I'm the kind of viewer where my eyes will wander, right? Um, And so, but what I liked was he didn't force us to look a certain way or to hone in on a particular actor. He allows the viewer to to follow the kids as they Mm -hmm. go after the little weird bird while people are talking in the (laughs) foreground. And, and I, I enjoy that. If you, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like he's giving me free reign to create my own movie in some ways and follow whomever. But like, I appreciated that, that he just let, 
also it's not like rapid fire dot it is rapid fire dialogue when they're talking but there's also like silent moments or moments mm-hmm. where the camera just sits and and I really did like that. I enjoyed this probably more than I expected that I was going to. He has a really good grasp on comedic timing and knowing how to like, I, I again, I brought up earlier when Schwartzman has to tell his kids about his mother, their mother passing away. He knows how to like make a moment, you know, sit for a little bit because the humor is in the prolongment of actually saying the, you know, yes, yes, she's gone or whatever. And like just how he says it. Yeah, it's... It, and to your point, I mean, this, I think he is you in that sense and kind of like I am where he seems like a director whose eye wanders when he's watching a movie. So he's going to reward the people who do that. Uh, yeah. And which also just seems like he also loves then, you know, your production designers and all that because then it's like, yeah, go crazy and let's make everything good as opposed to just being con- constrained by the aspect ratio, which is why I think he is so in love with incorporating so many of them. And in this, he he honestly doesn't go too crazy with it. He's more reserved or conservative than he was in Grand Budapest, which it worked in that too, because that had so many different characters. Maybe the one criticism I'd have of this is at least with something like Grand Budapest or even Annihilated Dogs, where there's so many who's who of people. French Dispatch did this as well, where it's like it's almost like an anthology film where they all have their one their segments. Here, they all have their own little subplots, but they're all in Asteroid City, so they have to kind of collide a lot. And he makes that work yeah. for the most part, but it can be a bit overwhelming. And I think one of the reasons I always loved Darjeeling Limited is it's in comparison to all of his other movies, it's just, you know, these three brothers and then, you know, Bill Murray and them. So it's more isolated. By his standards, it's kind of like a Bottle Rocket Rushmore, where it's more focused on just a couple of characters as opposed to, I'd say, ever since Royal Tenenbaums, where everything's been about a family of some sorts. Even if they're not related, it's like having one big extended family having to come together. Any other thoughts before we segue into spoilers? I I think all the other spots I want kind of like tiptoeing because I'm not sure what I considered spoilers or not. Um so I'll just say this is definitely a watch for me from a Wes Anderson fan. I, I've seen some people call it peak Wes Anderson because it definitely feels like he's putting everything you expect from him in this, but he's doing it in, like you said, Jose, a very clever and orchestrated way where I, I think he's being very introspective. Uh, and I think, yeah, even if you're an outsider, I, I think you're going to get enough out of this. And it's it's definitely worth seeing on a big screen. It looks and sounds absolutely gorgeous. So big watch yeah. for me. It's... uh. Yeah, as I said, if you are a artsy-fartsy film lover at heart, um, this one's definitely for you, or even just the the art of cinema and pure, pure filmmaking at its, as, at its essence. Um, you will get a lot out of this. You will enjoy this film. I don't think it's going to work for, for the kind of moviegoer that is looking forward to, say, Barbie or the next Marvel film are not going to get a lot out of this. And so it may be a skip for like the general audience type. Um, but yeah, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, it's a watch for me. Perfect. All right. So if you have not seen asteroid city and I was going to make a joke about that movie with Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, um, this is not that, but if you have not seen <laughs> asteroid city, we're going to spoil the Shazaz out of it in three two one uh so first of all the alien was like the funniest thing ever <laughs> yes i that's why um, i didn't want to even though I, they kind of mentioned it a bit in the the trailer i think in the plot like they don't it's not completely overt when that alien descends and it's this lanky almost paper mache thing 
the whole yeah. theater howled. We were just, it was oh so my God. funny. It was hysterical. Oh. And then, and then they almost set it up like it was going to be this close encounter counters thing because they also had the the readout of the little spots that were that the that Woodrow was like, oh, they're repeating in intervals, this and that or whatever. And then Tilda Swinton is like, we've never thought of that before or whatever, you know? <laughs> um, but they almost set it up like it was going to be this like close encounters thing. And then the dude takes the asteroid and dips out. It was so <laughs> weird. I was like, okay. And then they return it and it turns out he was just inventorying it. Yeah. So it wasn't even like this grand scale like, they're going to do something, something with it or come back and destroy us. They drop it back off and it just has etchings on it. Yeah. <laughs> like funny. it's one of those things where it's like, we've always, there's always been the two things. You either take aliens as just monsters, uh, but then you have the, uh, your artsy fartsy types. I always think of Roger Ebert always stress this, you know, if there are aliens from other planets that are going to come here, they would have to be intelligent in order to make it here. You know, what would there be their intentions? And I think this is almost a commentary on that of like, yeah, they are intelligent, but maybe to us or to them, we're not like, we're just another race. So like, they don't, they only did this, it was almost accidental. You could argue that the asteroid even landed here and they're just, they're like, okay, you could take it back, but we have to inventory the fact that we did this. Like we're nothing to them. Right. And I liked that. How it's just that you know, it's it's so funny. So you know what's so you know what's weird? The cast list says that Jeff Goldblum was the alien. He technically was because remember at the end. So the, the whole wraparound for this, and they open this up, is that this is actually a play being performed. That we're kind of we're seeing we're seeing it as if it's a film, but then occasionally they'll break and you'll have Edward Norton as the writer or uh, Adrian Brody as the director, and you'll have them maybe on the sets. At the end, you see Goldblum in the alien outfit, and he goes, uh, it's a metaphor. I just don't know what of yet. Like, I don't know what my metaphor yes. is. And it's yes. funny because they I saw his name, obviously, in the open credits and said, as the alien. And I'm like, so is the alien going to talk? Because I'm like, it kind of looks like his lanky style. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if Goldblum doesn't even voice this thing, but they just gave him the credit anyway, but then he pops up. Uh, but then the he pops up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so that was so that's uh, obviously in the spoiler free section for the listeners. Um, the film opens with uh, in the Academy ratio. We're gonna, it's called the Academy ratio, but basically it's essentially 181, which is the television aspect or the old school television aspect before we had widescreen digital um, HD TVs at home. Um, there was a, it, our TVs in the past. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying this. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, so the TVs I grew up with had a very square like look to it. And unlike the 16.9, if you if you see those in your TV manual, um, you know, geared for high definition, which gives you that rectangular image, you know, growing up in television, it was a square. Mm -hmm. And so it opens in the square ratio, black and white. Brian Cranston's doing this weird, like, Rod Serling, like, <laughs> and then there was a writer, you know, like Twilight Zone or whatever. And and it posits that that what we are about to see is is a play that this Edward Norton character has been writing, and every now and then it'll it'll flash back to a black and white scene of the sort of behind the scenes, and we get to see how um, as they're making the play and as Norton is workshopping it, he's picking actors or they're getting suggestions from other people on how to sort of like finish the play. And what's weird is that, and I called it like Jason Schwartzman 
comes from his last play in a black and white segment and comes to Ed Norton and is talking about like, he's like, he's, he's pitching himself auditioning to be this main character. And um, like a typical actor, he walks off screen and then he comes in in a different like outfit or something. And there's like a spotlight and suddenly it's like scene he's auditioning for it or what have you. But what I thought was curious, and this is what I loved about this, the filmmaking style was that, Sure, he's delivering the monologue in their spotlights, right? But as he moves across the 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 apartment, he stands by these pictures, and it turns out to be like nude cowboys, like um, like uh, riding or like hanging out by like the fire, and they're completely naked. And I turned I turned to Scott, and I was like, Oh my god, Ed, is Ed Norton's character gay? Like, what's going on with that? And then, sure enough, after he pitches this, and they're like, Oh, it's going to be a great work. They kiss. And I was like, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> so, um, and that is why I had said in the spoiler free section, was this really just a story about Schwartzman's character who has that kind of typical actor life, but he's bringing things from his own life into the film. And, and that his life and what's happening backstage is informing his performance, right? Because then at the end of the film, he's talking with who you believe was his like wife because there's a picture and it's like Margot Robbie. And I'm like, oh, his mother, their mother is Margot Robbie or whatever. Like this is the only picture we have of her. But it turns out that in the black and white segment, that picture was of an actress and they were supposed to be on a project together but she wasn't picked and he was, they go through the dialogue that they had together. And then he's like, Oh, well, see you on the next project and leaves. And then Matt Dillon presumably comes in to like hit on her or whatever. But it was this weird synthesis of art, imitating life, imitating art. And I didn't know if that was the point or if they were also making a commentary about the actual characters in asteroid city who they've all got their set designs on how to raise a kid or who they're supposed to be or who they want to be like the, the Scarlett Johansson character. And then suddenly this life event happens. Well, several actually they get quarantined and then the alien shows up and it's, and then suddenly the rest of the movie is how people are coping with this sort of like, we want to get out but then we don't really want to get out because we actually kind of like staying here and meeting these people. Um, and that sort of push and pull, like, do we really want to be here or do we want to, you know, excel? Who do we want to be in our lives? And I, I just, I guess I was so confounded by the messages. I didn't know really what to think about it. So this is where I thought it was introspective because I'm not saying that this is Wes Anderson coming out of the closet, but when I say he was like Jason Schwartzman or even I guess Norton in that, in the sense that that's where the introspection came from of like every time somebody is like, oh, what's the metaphor? I know there's a metaphor. What is it? I felt like that was Anderson wrestling with himself and handling some of the criticisms that people would have of him and any other artist, really, that's going to have a film that possibly has a deeper meaning. And, yeah. and I think on another level, like you're saying, what that makes that work is who are we as a society or who are we as a human being? Because Schwartzman's character in the play itself, when we see him as Augie, he constantly brings up the fact that he's a war photographer. He almost always, well, I'm a war photographer. He takes random boom. Well, I'm a photographer. That's what I do. And that's wrestling with this idea of, especially in the fifties, 
is what I do define who I am or can I be something more? And I think especially with them being quarantined, uh, there's a lot of, you know, argument about maybe diversity. And that's why even just diversity in the sense of like they might, you know, might not even be of a racial diversity, but just st- uh your style and your own culture, kind of a diversity. And like you said, how you would do child rearing and how maybe both, it's funny because them being quarantined, it effectively bottles them like they would be back in their own suburbia. But here they're being bottled with a diverse crew. So they're, yeah. it's opening their minds where the joke would be when you get stuck in your own ways in your own asteroid city, which especially whenever you see movies, I mean, Stephen King's whole thing in the fifties is peeling back the curtain curtains of like what was suburbia and like, Oh, what's actually underneath it. Um, so I think that's a, definitely where he's going from. And that's why I'm kind of where I think it works because for you, for somebody who hasn't really seen Anderson before, you can already catch on that. He's probably trying to do that, but it works as its own thing. Like to catch the also credit to him for getting a PG 13 nudity, not just because of the gay cowboy, the naked gay cowboys yeah. on Ram ranch, but also because we have a scene where Scarlett Scott Johansson does uh, full full frontal nudity, but it's from yeah. afar and it's kind of, and I feel like it was already artistically shot like that where it's kind of, I mean, it, it almost is purposeful, I think, because it's about, again, identity and feeling comfortable in your own skin and how you see it. So I think it was always shot to be somewhat obscured or filtered where you can't quite make out because it's her looking almost afar into a mirror. But I think he was able to argue down from an R because of that. And I don't know if that was him just thinking that to begin with or just making the argument of like, Hey, you know, which is funny because you used to be able to get away with this kind of nudity in PG rated movies. And then PG 13 yes. came along and somehow you couldn't even get away unless it was uh butt. that's the only thing you can typically get away with in a PG 13 well, movie. One butt or breasts in a non-sexual context, yes. which is like, where are you going to see an ass or a butt in like, yeah. I'm you, sorry, an ass or breasts in a non-sexual context? And even if you see it in, an, uh, in a sexual content, the MPAA has already shown that as long as it's comedic, they're more fine with it. If it's something like yeah. Boys Don't Cry, where you don't even see the actual sex, but you just get them actually having an orgasm, that apparently is a big no-no. I, I'm yeah. going to stop like myself. 50 Shades of Grey. I know. Yeah. That, that could be a separate episode, but like. But You're good right. on him I mean, for I, fighting that and actually yeah. winning in this case against the MP, well, just MPA now. I know it's easier, but for some reason I prefer the two A's. <laughs> yes. But you know, it's um I'm glad that I'm glad that you also I mean, I, I wasn't very I don't think I was very good at articulating all oh, of the things were. that are going that are going on here, but you know, it's it, it, it's it's curious because you're right. There's a clash of diversities, right? So there's the there's the the ranch hand and his guys who let the kids smoke, mm-hmm. and then Maya Hawk, Maya Hawk comes in and is like, "What the hell are you doing? Like, put the cigarette <laughs> down, get back to whatever, right?" They says, and then you, well, he, he, we didn't give him the cigarette; he just had it. Like, that's the problem. Right. <laughs> like, that's okay, right? <laughs> Sit down with us or whatever. And by the way, that song, I absolutely oh, love yes. the little song that the guy that the kid put together. Mm-hmm. I thought it was hysterical. But then, like, you also get the parents who are like, well, my kid's going to do this. And my kid created this death ray, mm-hmm. you know, which I thought was hysterical, which the parents are later then using to, like, shoot uh, whatever because they're bored. They're yeah. like, pull. And they're, like, <laughs> you know, blowing up the stuff or whatever. And then you've also got the kids who 
are clearly five leagues above the intelligence of the, even their parents, right? I love the little game that they're playing where they're just adding on names and they're repeating it. Mm-hmm. It's um, a memory and game. Memorizing yeah. it, right? At first, but I was then, confused by the game because I was like, well, how are these people related? And I'm like, oh, no, it has nothing to do with, you know, relations. It's just. Because it was when she said, say it backwards. I'm like, oh my God, duh, it's a memory game. They just want to see how yeah. long they could say names and remember it. It's, it's a verbal but Simon you, Says. But did you notice like later in the film, they're still playing the game mm-hmm. and it's like 20 names long or whatever. Yeah. Like I'm like, okay, these kids. And, and I don't but, know um, if it was purposeful, but I feel like they started out going with very, what you would think intelligent people would do. All of these like, you're people along lines of Albert Einstein, all these scientists and that, but then yes. later it's movie stars, which isn't, yes. I mean, the daughter Dinah is a daughter of a star. So I don't even think it's like making fun of that as like its own art form. But I felt like, was that because by the time they do it, they were, I was in quarantine. I'm like, is that a commentary that they've now been dumbed down or not? But I, I don't even know if it was anything. Well, I think, I think it's either that or, you know, we don't, we don't hear about those scientific people, right? Yeah, that's and what so I thought. Like, that's, so. that's their heroes, right? And so they had to go to what was known, what their parents know or what mm-hmm. have you, I guess. But I also love that like the the Asian kid is kind of like, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm going to sue everybody and you <laughs> you can't treat us like this. And he's like one of those little, he's like a kid, right? But he's already got these like big ideas about everything. Um, and what but I, I, think, I think definitely they were, he was making a commentary about like, well, why did you do it? I'm a photographer. And this whole notion of like purpose, right? Mm-hmm. So Tony Revely, who we we both know as um, Flash Thompson, I hate that character. Um, but he's in the film and literally all he does is hand Jeffrey Wright's <laughs> general character like notes or informs him about things that are happening. And that's all he does. But like, that's his purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Just like all the other characters have their purpose. I'm going to teach you about Neptune. Um, and all the kids want to talk about the alien. I don't know about the alien. I'm supposed to be here to touch, mm-hmm. talk to you about Neptune. I can't deviate from Neptune. And all they want to do is talk about the alien. So, I mean, all those commentaries are, are, are definitely there. And I think that the material is, is richer than expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I would need to see more Anderson films to yes. figure out. I, I think know, you would really like the scheme. grand, really love the Grand Budapest Hotel. One because Revelory is the lead in that, but two because um, it, it's it, it it's him going through all of his you know film loving techniques. So what you talk to here, but I do think that there's more of a commentary on diversity in that film than I yeah. even thought the first time I watched it. Um, yeah, I think that Royal Tenenbaums obviously is always going to hold a special place in my heart. Cause that's what introduced me to that. Uh, I think you need to get on the stop mation train and check out, especially fantastic Mr. Fox. I mean, if you could only do one of the two, you should do both, but if you could only do one of the two, by far fantastic Mr. Fox. It is just such a wonderful, wonderful, lovely film that is just like a storybook come to life. Like, oh, I just I can't gush so, about that over. So how does this stack up with the other ones? Like if you were to if you were to rank them, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Okay, so if I was gonna, rank, gonna rank, them. rank them, I would say oh, so if we had like tiers, top three. Let's just do top okay. three. Okay. So I don't know if it'd be in the top three. Make- so th- to make it easier, because it's always hard okay. when you see it for the first time. But if I were to yeah. say there were three tiers, like top tier. And then 
good middle tier and then maybe the lower tier, which for him is still good. I would say mm-hmm. it's right at the top of the middle going into the third. So I could see it getting into top over time. Right now, I think it's just a balance between the two. Okay. Um, but especially as we're talking about it more and the more I'm thinking about it, I, I think I see this much like Grand Budapest getting higher as opposed to French Dispatch, where I think it's kind of stayed where I thought of when I first saw it a couple of years ago, where it was just like, this is good, but not great. But I like the fact that it seemed, I like his more anthology approach in that. So I wouldn't mind going because it was a more focused anthology than Grand Budapest because it still came with the French Dispatch, but it was easier to like everyone has their own story and then bringing it together than how it did with Grand Budapest. Um, I'm curious where he goes next, though, because I feel like Darjeeling was so introspective and then he still did what you expect from Russ Anderson. But like I said, he's done a more anthology setting where now that this is his most introspective, I'd say since then, is he going to go in a different way now? Is he almost going to go... I mean, I think of, is he going to go like Paul Thomas Anderson maybe and do something similar to like a licorice peacher in that where it's still indulging in what he loves, but maybe it's more insular, you know, or is he going to, yeah. I kind of want him to, he has to keep his style. Does he go back to doing another stop mation or does he do another movie or two? I mean, I would like to see another stop mation, but I would say, yeah, it's, it's definitely up there for me. Um, and it's, it's one of the funnier ones. I, I laughed quite, quite a bit at this. Uh, like I could even go further with everything with the alien, that's still more in diversity because, like you said, the kids just want to talk about it. Is it you, we don't want to deviate from the norm? We don't know, so we don't want to face it. And then you had the the great gag on top of that terrific, hysterical, lovely song that that kid makes with about the oh alien. Then at the it. end, because they're trying to, because they're quarantined, they're trying to patch in the the parents that they at least came to the tent. You just see them on the little TV, and they oh just have this long away look, and it was so brief. Oh my god, I laughed so hard at that look. Yeah, that was that was amazing. Also, um, some of it was just hysterical, like the little the little automated machines. It, it felt like it felt like space balls. Like, what is this? This is our Mister Coffee. But like, there was a machine that said like real estate, right? Yeah, you could just buy land. <laughs> and then Carol Carol explains. He's like, well, you know, it's just gonna be this little tiny one up there, right by the cactus, or you know. And then the one kid, um, almost certainly like. This I think was endemic of the theme as well. Also, I think I think the whole film hinges on the metaphor of the of the of the highway that they're building, but mm-hmm. it's literally just a <laughs> ramp and then it stops, right? Um, but but there's the kid who's like, "Dare me to do something," and they're like, and Liev Schreiber like loses his shit on the kid. And he's like, why, why do you why do you dare people to do stuff when it's stupid or whatever? And then the kid has this epiphany because he's one of the smarter kids, right? Um, although he did jump off the roof, so there's that. Um, but but he sort of has this epiphany like, well, I dare people because I guess I just want them to see me and love me. Mm-hmm. And then and then Carol and Liev Schrieber, they feel so horrible, right? That they're like, okay, dare us to do what? What do you want us to do? <laughs> what do you want to do? <laughs> or whatever. And I... It's. I think that that commentary is also very, very illuminating because that's the push and pull with, you know, the young and and the older people set in their ways, mm-hmm. right? But then once we have this communication, this bridge, and we understand why people are doing the things that they do, that we have empathy and compassion, that, you know, it's easier for us to to relate to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. There's so many layers here. I absolutely love this, and and I did enjoy seeing Scarlett Johansson naked. So yes, that just, was kind of fun. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was but, basically uh, her under the skin. Uh, honestly, it's a very similar to how she was shot in under the skin because that one, her nudity and that was also around the mirror and that. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was intentional by Wes Anderson. Cause he's obviously a film yeah. lover that if it was like, you know, one of your, that's a very polarized, that's one that I'm actually, I'm slowly liking a bit more, but that was one where yeah. it was just like, I see why people like this and I see its message, but it didn't quite connect with me. That would be, well, I liked all the frontal nudity. Yeah. So well, I did too. That. Yeah. And I, I liked but, everything with the Cowboys and even just like what you said, when they pull it, Cranston has one of the biggest laughs because they always cut, to him but like you said oh, with the Serling stuff so he's always God. in black and white and there's, he just randomly appears when they're at the communal showers at by the point. communal shower and he's, he's just, like oh I'm not in this and he steps away <laughs> that was the that second was, biggest laugh in that, the audience next to the alien oh that man. was great that was so great. all of that all of that fourth fourth wall busting stuff I I really did take to that I love I mean mm-hmm. as you know you and I we love b-roll we love watching people mm-hmm. work on a set and act or whatever like I just I love that I thought that was hysterical that he yeah. was like oh I'm not in this scene or whatever <laughs> what have you and then the other thing that that got me that I thought was like I was howling I think I was the only one laughing in my theater though there were a couple and this says something as well there were a couple older people like senior citizens mm-hmm. in front of us who were laughing their ass off as much as I was, but the youngins were kind of like, which, which is or whatever. Interesting because mine was much more diverse. And like, mm-hmm. even with the one who I said was like a little too artsy for me, like the Anderson usually appeals to your like 20 year olds. It seems like a lot of his demographic, the the hipsters basically. And those yeah. were the ones that populated a big part of my crowd. And then I would say older hippies probably. Yeah, but there was uh, the the other thing that I absolutely laughed at coming from somebody who's dipped their toes into acting was the workshop where they were talking about like, well, we want you all to think about as if you were like asleep and you were dreaming something, which leads to the whole like, uh, what was it? Uh, you can't um, dream if you're, you can't, you can't wake, you can't wake up if you never go to sleep or that's something a, yeah, like that. Yeah, you can't wake up if you never yeah. go to sleep. Which again is the message, which I think dovetails with everything that he's been trying to say, which is you can't when there's some X factor that happens in your life. Like, so in this movie, it would be the alien. It would be the military with the quarantine, or even at the end when there's this random shootout that just goes driving through the highway. And you're kind of like, (laughs) where the fuck is that coming from? But I think that was the commentary about like, you know, we all have expectations about where our life is supposed to be and what other people put on us. But at the end of the day, if you never leave your home, if you never risk anything, if you never leave the safe confines of things, if you never go to sleep, you can't wake up. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and actually at the end when somebody was singing, that's they, they wrote a song called, if you never, <laughs> you can never wake up if you don't go to sleep. And I swear, I thought that was Leonard Cohen. And then I was like, wait a minute, Leonard Cohen's dead. It can't be Leonard Cohen. Right. But whoever sung it sounded a lot like Leonard Cohen. Um, but I maybe, love that well, exercise. Maybe he th- made us think that he's dead. You know, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe yes. Wes Anderson was Leonard Cohen and Tilda Swinton all along. <laughs> wah, wah. But, uh, but I did love when, when he was like, okay, I want you all to focus on that and do it now. And then like everybody in the audience, who's an actor, like goes into suddenly this like sleeping thing. And one guy starts sleepwalking. Somebody <laughs> rolls onto the ground. I absolutely love that. I thought, I thought that was great. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, Oh, by the way, since we're in spoiler territory, it was weird that I saw this and no hard feelings because 
in No Hard Feelings, um, Jennifer Lawrence's character gets completely naked as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and they're on a beach and they're they're skinny dipping, and then these boys take their clothes, and she's like, I ain't having none of that. And she gets out of the ocean and beats the shit out of these guys <laughs> completely naked. Um, so that's what I was referring to in the spoiler-free section. But that scene alone in now again, I don't know if it's really her or if it's a stunt double, but whoever it was, great body nude fighting it needs to add to my collection (laughs) but anyway i digress but yeah i this film is something that i think oh did you also think that maybe jason schwartzman was banging adrian adrian brody because oh yeah well i honestly i for a split second thought that norton brody were supposed to be the same person because i thought they were both called schubert green and i thought like are they the same person but when he's writing he's a different like entity than he is when he's directing but i think i might have just been putting that because i think they appear next to each other near the end they so do. i think that was just me putting that on there but i yeah. think so. well, the I last, think there the like last a- workshop they were they were on they were on the stage with willem dafoe yeah yeah but um yeah because he's he's in a divorce and he's sleeping at the studio and then when schwartzman comes in he does that weird gesture of like getting on his knees and putting his hands on schwartzman's um knees as schwartzman's sitting there and i'm like oh my god are we gonna get a bj at the end of this film like what's going on yeah it was either that Um, or it could have just been the since he was the director like you're my main star so i'm like more of a service to you than you are to me but i I think i think i think he may be onto something there i think especially because why else bring up i mean i guess you could just brought it up because how many directors end up going through that type of stuff i mean synodoc new york also dealt somewhat you know with you know marital issues because when you're an artist that that just comes with the territory. It's the same yeah. thing as like when people think about cops or firefighters, where it's when it's a job that consumes you, it it, it makes it hard to for some people to have a a family life. So it could have just been yeah. that. But I think you might be onto something though. Also, this is the kind of writing that we are up that a viewer is up against when when they do this. So so there's a scene between Adrian Brody and his wife who they're divorcing, right? And the wife, you know, they talk about the movie and then they get into the heartfelt sort of like, this is why I'm separating. This is why I'm divorcing. By the way, the stagehand at one point is asked to leave and he goes like stage right. And I'm like, where did you go? You went behind a door. I don't understand <laughs> what just happened. But anyway, so they're talking about this and the and the woman is like, you know, I really do still love you. I'm so sorry. We still have to divorce. And by the way, when you do that scene, you should have her close the door and then say, you know, goodbye or whatever. And then he's like, okay. And then she walks out, closes the door. There's a pause. And then she goes, goodbye. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of writing we're up against. But I just, I don't know. I eat that shit up. I loved it. Good. I just thought, wow, that's just so well well written. It says everything and nothing all at the same time, I there, guess. I don't know. There's a way that he <laughs> writes it and directs it that works for me. Because I've mentioned, uh, even on our Oscars episode, when it came to the Fablemans, which, which I liked. But sometimes you can either be too schmaltzy with it or too on the nose. And I think why he works for me is he is somehow on the nose, but not if that makes sense. Yeah, like he doesn't, it's the right balance. He finds the right balance. And I think it's because he lets those quiet moments. I think that's my biggest issue is a lot of times some of these move. I mean, the best scene in Fablemans is a quiet moment that just lets the, the peep, the, the emotions tell the story. And I sometimes feel like a lot of these films that are about the, the love of art and all that, 
they have to beat you over the head with it. And it's like, well, yeah, I know this is wonderful. I know it's this and that. Express it to me. Like, that's why you have actors. Let it be expressed. You don't have to just overly write it. And here he, Anderson finds a way of just getting, like you said, the perfect balance between the two that hits my comfort zone. So where others wouldn't, and I would be maybe rolling my eyes or getting tired of it here, I can see where that would hit for people, but he just, he has it done so well that it just, it's captivated me. Yeah. I mean, just as an example of what you're talking about, there's a, um, like at some point they set up like a carnival for like the alien. (laughs) Right. And, and, um, Maybe this is not the scene. Maybe it's some other scene. But anyway, they're they're like panny. There's this long pan to the right about everything. And then when the camera stops at frame right, this little kid comes into the equation and he's just staring off into nowhere. And he's got this cute little like alien like spacesuit on or whatever. And that just, you know, gave me a giggle. Like, I, I don't know if anybody else saw it in the theater. I was like laughing because it's over in frame right. But like just... It's pure filmmaking, and you would think that that would make you want to roll your eyes and be like, oh, my God, so artsy-fartsy. But I just dug it, and mm-hmm. I didn't – for whatever reasons, it doesn't feel like being banged over the head. Mm-hmm. And you which know why? Is, which, which people are going to laugh at because when it bumps into the full color, like full-spectrum ratio, the look is so unique that I think – you know, I think people are going to be like, Jose, come on. Like, it's yeah. not beating you over the head. And I'm like, no, it's not actually. There's, I can't explain it. Uh, so. But I think I'm going to try to explain it a bit, or at least where you're coming from, because you hit the nail on the head. And the fact that it's moments like that, like where there's stuff going on in the right hand or in the foreground or the background, and nobody else is acknowledging it. Like, the director doesn't even seem to be acknowledging it. And to me, that's not beating me over the head. And yeah, there may be other moments in the film where he's going to. And again, I think he has a bit of a point to do to do it there. But when you're not doing it and you're just allowing it to breathe and you're letting us discover it, that to me is great. Like that, I love stuff yeah. that's in the background. That's why I feel like this isn't so bludgeoning with it is because he's just, yeah. he's, he's just, he is so in engaged with his world that it almost feels like you can't beat someone over the head with it. It's like that idea where if yeah. you beat a dead, a joke so many times into the ground that it starts to become funny again. Maybe he's found that, but instead of doing it so much, he just does it right off the bat. So you just automatically get to that. Yeah, this is good again from the outset. You know, not, not to like toot my own horn, but like I, and I don't know if Scooter sees these things, but like I was like constantly nudging him and like pointing like to the screen where I'm sure the people behind me thought I was insane, but, <laughs> but I think that like, I was one of the first people to get a laugh out of there's this saying that's outside of Matt, um, Matt Dillon's mechanic shop. And I, the first time it popped into frame, I just start laughing. And then Scott was like, what are you fucking laughing at? And like, nothing's happening. And then I go, just wait. And then it, when it showed up again in a shot, I was like, read the sign, read the sign. But it said something like, like death rides on unserviced tires or whatever. And I just, like, uh, the first time it came into the shot, I just howled with laughter because I was like, that's, that's so this time period and this mm-hmm. vision. And then when Matt Dillon comes out, 
like clearly he's the one who wrote it because like his whole like well there's situation one and there's situation two and then like the car explodes and he's like i think we got an unidentified situation three <laughs> yeah it's just it- and it also works because that would work as a title for like a twilight zone show or something like that or like right. one of those pulp stories you would read that you would find at like these <laughs> diners or these like gas stations in the 50s <laughs> uh it's the layers again there's just so much going on and it's just it's a delight and you kind you did want like he's smart and he only keeps it an hour and 44 because it doesn't overstay its welcome and it's smart because it leaves you wanting more but doesn't actually give you more and then you come to the realization of oh wait i didn't want more because i came out right. going man i just want to live in this this asteroid city it's kind of yeah. like when i saw uh, true stories i was like i just wanted to live in that world and i think a lot of that came from the fact not just that they define it so well but that was like an 80 some minute movie when you make it and i'm fine with long movies but when you make it between that 90 to two hour mark sometimes if you hit that sweet spot that's when i get that i want to live in this world because you're not making me actually live in it so i can be almost nostalgic about it immediately after walking out and i think you have i think you have a great point about the fact that um you know just to sort of dovetail with what i've said about him almost being like like a playwright or a, a literate novelist is he gives you enough to make it thought provoking right like Honestly, if if I leave a film and I'm thinking about what it's saying and I'm thinking about the scenes that I've seen in my head, that's all I ever ask for as mm-hmm. as like a film consumer, right? I'm certainly not thinking that much about Morbius, although well, that's you know, actually certainly. a bad case. I think you are, but <laughs> I don't. Yes, see that. okay, you're right. I do. I do overthink things, but for the general film consumer, True. if they leave something and they're like well, why did he show me this? Or why was that scene in there? And what about that, you know, weirdo kid who jumped off the roof? That's all I ever asked Morbius for, isn't so. doing that, is what you were getting at. I just wanted to poke fun <laughs> yes. at you. you had Nor a, is Ant-Man and Quantumania. Quantumania. Well, that's, a, that's a great example because I'll stand by my soft watch, but I don't really think about it much outside of the... No. No, I just... It's, I don't. And honestly, it's been all the Ant-Man movies. I like him in, in the moment, but they don't really stand up. Yeah, like Kang the Conqueror. Who? Anyway, yeah, well, anyway. I, I would disagree, but they might they might be smart to go Kang the Conqueror. Who and just move on. <laughs> yes. Also, I will say this: for whatever reasons in the trailer, I thought that the woman who played Midge's uh, Scarlett Johansson's daughter, I thought that was like Alia Shawcott, but she's Alia Shawcott adjacent in some ways. Mm-hmm. But I really, really liked her. I That's just thought who- she was so appealing and wonderful and then the boy that played woodrow speaking of you know tom holland's younger geekier looking jewish (laughs) brother like he was he sort of was like that too and i just i could not take my eyes off of that kid like Mm -hmm. i just thought he has such a unique look Mm -hmm. but he's also so funny and heartbreaking all at the same time. You know what he has? And it's, it's what Adrian Brody has. And it could be something that I'm sure they've probably been made fun of. But when I say it, I actually mean it as a positive. They have a very unique big nose and that is perfect when you have someone like, you know, the people working on this film who know how to shoot that and it makes it part of like the character. It's like, it's so distinctive that it, you know, it, it works yeah. so well. And thank you for saying Shawcott. I couldn't, now I know who reminded me of. And if the easiest way, if you people don't know who we're referring to, Arrested Development is where I was introduced. And I think most people were, but also Green Room, stuff like that. It just now hit me when you said that. I'm like, that's who she reminded me of. Because that was another yeah. one where it was kind of like, 
with uh, Sasha Kale from last week, where I kept going back to the IMDb. I'm like, I swear I've seen this person before. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. At least um, I have an answer for this week. I still don't know with Sasha. It must have been Young and the Restless. <laughs> yeah, Shokat was also in Max's Search Party okay. as well. So if you haven't if you haven't seen it, yeah. But um, yeah, no, I just uh, that kid was particularly good. And just to go back to what you talked about, like shooting wise. This is shot on film, which God bless. We don't have to complain about the red anymore <laughs> or anything like that. There's only um, one red red light. There's no, I know. There's only, and there's no complaint in there. I'm kind, but but the way that Yeoman shot this movie, like there was just, it's all just really beautiful. There is a shot where I think a bunch of them are maybe getting like breakfast or something like that, and the sun is coming through the lattice work of this like gazebo that they're standing under so you can see the squares over everybody but there's people in the foreground who are fully lit with no square it's just it's beautiful it's really well done damn you wes anderson i may have to go back and see your other Man. your other film oh you I, I will be surprised if you don't i might uh yes. but you need it it has to come between your revisits of stuff like morbius the protege you know yeah, exactly. Actually, that would be that. See, that's kind of what I like. That was like you. That should be your double feature. You rewatch something like Morbius, and then you go to Anderson. Like I like sometimes having yeah. like the all different kind of spectrums. That variety, which is what this film is about. You need variety in your life, folks. Yes, and let me tell you, if anybody were to ever ask me to program a festival, it would be the least attended festival <laughs> ever. Uh. <laughs> All right. Any other final no, thoughts? I, I think uh, I think we hit everything. I mean, there's so much more we could probably go through, but it's also I, I I need to see this again so I can form new theories. But I just this is a lot of fun. I think its commentary works without being too distracting. And yeah, it's it's a big watch for me. And I think yep. I, even though I will agree with you, Jose, that maybe the general public. Probably, I mean, I think Grand Budapest might be the one that seemingly everyone kind of, or Moonrise Kingdom, I think is the one that I would recommend to general public see. I do think that if you are a film lover who's been on the fence about seeing Wes Anderson, the fact that Jose has taken to it, I feel comfortable saying, even if it's maybe not this movie to start, you can probably dive in and appreciate Wes Anderson. So it's a big watch for me. Yeah. And it's, it's a watch. It's, Hey, it can even be a big watch. Actually, it's all the watches, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> and and again, I think that Anderson is, you know, whether you like his, I won't use the Q word, whether you, whether you take to his eccentric filmmaking visual style and storytelling, whether you do that or not, he is a pure filmmaker through and through. Like, I often say, you know, uh, so-and-so is, is in uh an artist, a consummate artist, 100% through and through, I would put Anderson in that camp as well. This is pure, wonderful filmmaking. Yep, it goes Wes Anderson, and I'm right below him, Paulie Shore. Wait, no, sorry, wrong list. (laughs) No, it goes goes Wes Anderson, and then the director of Morbius. (laughs) (laughs) Whose name we can't even remember at this point. Who directed that? Uh, Paulie Shore. (laughs) So... (laughs) Hey, you know what? Actually, if you are a Wes Anderson fan and you want to email us and let me know which one I need to dive into first, that is non-stop-mation. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, although Isle of Dogs has really, really intrigued me because uh, you know, I'm obsessed with I'm obsessed with Japanese culture. So, and I, Isle you know. of Dogs has some of the most gorgeous scenery. Like they use 
glass at certain points like because they're in this area where it's like obviously trash so they use like the lighting on some of the glass to make rainbow effects oh my god so you will love isle of dogs as well from, okay okay oh. well if you have other if you have other wes anderson's you want me to watch you can reach out to us also if there's any patent lawyers out there who can help us to trademark stopmation as the industry term yes or help justin to do that please reach out because <laughs> i think i think justin would like to uh live off of royalties for the term stopmation yes. and not have to work anymore and so. we will use this episode as proof that i coined it in case somebody tries Correct. to beat me to that patent <laughs> That's right. Before I, <laughs> many can lay claim to requel, but only one person can lay claim to stop nation. Um, so, but reach out to us. We're on social media. We have Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook presence, um, and obviously at anchor.fm backslash watch hyphen skip. I have not said that in a while, um, but you can also email us at watch skip plus spell out all the words no punctuation at gmail.com. Also, if you are inclined, you can send us an audio clip, voicemail, if you will, and send it to our DMs or even email it to us. Please don't use the button on anchor.fm because it never works. But if you love us, you will certainly love our Podfathers, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, over 600 episodes, bringing class to trash, as they say. Um, yes. they, they are often talking about like Eurocrime or even exploitation films. They are the OGs. Not a Bomb podcast, which revisits films like Morbius. I actually <laughs> guessed it on that episode. Or did I? Yes, I did. Yeah, did. Oh, yeah, um, it was you and I John. Did. I did. Yes. Um, they examine films that bombed, of which this year there are a lot of bombs. So you yeah. might want to start getting on the Not a Bomb train because they have a lot of movies to review given this year. And then, of course, the OG's Night of the Living podcast. We also love Wild Dream Podcast, who, by the way, in July, I think, or no, yes, in July, they're going to celebrate their one year anniversary. Woo! And you and Red, you and I, oh our God, anniversary are. is coming up in August. Can you yeah. believe it? August is a crazy month for me. It's my birthday, Shadow's birthday, our anniversary. That's when I have to yeah. have my uh, car inspected by. So I usually try to get that done in July. So I got to get on top of that. Yes, <laughs> please do so. But the Wild Dream Podcast, uh, David and Daniel, we love them. Death by DVD, Across the Pond, the Raiders of the podcast, Backlook Cinema with Zoe, VHS Files, which now has a YouTube account so you can watch those guys Josh oh. around. <laughs> it's come back. The pun is back. Silver and Gold, Cult of Muscle, Feminine Critique, and Married with Clickers Red. We hope that you are not overwhelmed by our style and enthusiasm. You always listen, you never skip, and you remember that you are the plus. And no sleeping with screenwriters or directors to get apart. Okay. I thought you were going to say, uh, and you can't sleep to dream, but if you dream, then you're awake. And then if you're awake, you dream, but if you dreamed, you're awake. That was the saying in the movie, right? No. Uh. Is this like Inception? Are we in level two? <laughs> I just became that. You ever see that meme where the kid was like asking somebody a question because did you ever want to, you know, like you ever feel like, you know, and he just got, I just became that. 